The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I am thrilled to be back for season two of You and Me Both. I know a lot has happened since season one concluded, like an insurrection on January 6th, and I had the chance to talk about what it was like that day in the Capitol with Speaker Nancy Pelosi for a bonus episode. And on a much happier note, we celebrated the inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Harris. Now, I have to tell you, I've been to every inauguration since 1993, and this one just felt so special. It certainly was a lot better than the one four years before because there was just a palpable feeling of relief and joy and hopefulness. And part of why I think we all felt that way is because of Amanda Gorman, the youngest presidential inaugural poet in history. Let me tell you, when that young, vibrant, charismatic woman walked to the front of the platform, 
in her bright yellow coat and that magnificent presence, I was thrilled. And the poem itself, titled The Hill We Climb, just captured the moment. And there were a lot of lines that have stayed with me, but here's one stanza that sums up the pain and the hope of the last four years. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true, that even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried. So you can imagine my excitement that we are starting this season by talking with Amanda, not only the youngest poet ever to read at an inauguration and the first youth poet laureate, she's the first poet to perform at the Super Bowl. And of course, on a personal note, she is someone with an enviable headband collection. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. I, I was trying to figure out how to wear a headband with my headset. <laughs> I love it. How how are you doing? I mean, I have to start by just saying, wow, what a whirlwind couple of weeks this has been for you, Amanda. Yeah, yeah. It's been wild. I'm doing good. I think I'm like on the third part of the wave of just like, <laughs> it, it, it was literally like, I feel like my life changed in like six minutes, basically. And so mm -hmm. my body has just been processing that. And now I'm feeling like, okay, I've absorbed that. It happened. Let's move forward. So yeah, feeling very good. Well, you sure made a lot of us feel very good. So uh, <laughs> it, it's mutually reinforcing. We needed some, you know, positive uplift and, mm. you know, a new sense of, uh, as you said the other day in that wonderful interview you did with Michelle Obama, unity with purpose. Uh, we needed to come together, not just for the sake of coming together, exactly, exactly. Uh, but to try to figure out what's the best way uh, forward. And you know, when I saw you and your mom on the platform at the <laughs> at the Capitol, yeah. it was just so exciting and it was revealing uh, the feelings that people had been bottled up that they hadn't been able to express because we were all holding our breath for four years. Yeah. What stood out to you from that day? Because it was such a happy occasion, even though it was under such odd circumstances. Right, right. Well, the day was both a whirlwind and endless. I'm not sure um, how it was for you. And I'm really mm -hmm. interested in hearing more about that because the whole time we were sitting there, my mom was like, oh my gosh, look at Hillary. She's so beautiful. I wonder what's <laughs> going through her head right now. You have to realize every single time that I'm in the vicinity of you, all of the grandmothers ever related to me are like, you have to tell her how much I love her. Oh. You know, there's no kind of like, do a good job. There's all like, tell Hillary, I love her. Um, but you know, what I remember from that day is, you know, you have this incredible sensation of the historicity of the moment. And it's, it's, something that I think is very difficult to internalize. So, mm -hmm. you know, you go up to the podium and I remember distinctly seeing the Washington Monument, seeing the Lincoln Memorial, seeing the flags laid out for the lives lost to COVID. And so you're standing in one of the most sacred physical spaces in American democracy. And I really remember just absorbing that, just trying to take that in, mm -hmm. in order to do the poem justice. Yeah. Well, you more than exceeded 
anybody's expectation. Of course, I flashed back immediately to Maya Angelou mm. uh, and the inauguration in, in 1993 because in very different ways, because obviously age and everything else that separated you, your spirits seem to be communing on that inaugural stage this mm. year. And it was so touching to me personally to summon back that memory. And I know that you have told people you had a little bit of writer's block. You weren't right. quite sure what you were going to say. And it was the terrible events of January 6th that seemed to really spark the creativity that led to what you did finally write. Absolutely. I mean, when I began writing the poem, I want to say I began it on January 1st, and I was just going at it like a slug. I think I was writing like <laughs> one sentence a day and kind of looking at myself like, if I continue at this pace, this poem is not going to be done until two inaugurations from now. And so I was, you know, doing my best to kind of chug along and do the labor. And then, you know, the events of the insurrection at the Capitol happened, and that just, it was this kind of of on switch moment where what I knew I needed to say clicked into place. Mm -hmm. And as we've been discussing, coming into the poem, I knew that the theme of the inauguration was going to be unity. But I think as the inaugural poet, I took it as my kind of responsibility to ask unity for what purpose? Unity to what end? Exactly. And I think poetry at times can speak to that in a way that prose cannot. And so that really helped me finish the poem. I sent it to the inaugural committee that night. One, because the poem was finished and I was proud of it and I wanted people to see it. But more importantly, too, I felt it really important to underscore to the committee that an inaugural poem was still more than possible in that moment, as mm -hmm. dark as it was, and that this was something that the country and the world needed to hear. Well, amen to that, because what you were able to do is to weave a story that was an honest story. You didn't shy away from deep and painful parts of our history, particularly right. our history of racism and slavery. But you also maintained hope about the future. You threw it into the future and I think was cathartic. Mm. You know, we mainly think of catharsis as being rooted in theater. But if you really go way, way, way back, I mean, the recitation of stories, exactly, uh, which you would call poetry, predates the acting out of plays. So in a sense, your capturing those feelings enabled the entire country to kind of go through them with you. Mm. Could you sense that when you were up there? Was that part of your consciousness? I sensed the catharsis when I was performing, but I think even more so when I was writing it, you know, mm -hmm. birthing it to being. I was very purposeful with myself and understanding that this was a moment to re-sanctify, to re-consecrate not only the Capitol building, but American democracy. Mm -hmm. um, I often talk about, I think in religion, catharsis and cleansing is most often connected with rituals of water. I think about cleansing in terms of like rituals of words. When there's been evil or wrongdoing, how do we build a new precedent? And often the language and the words and the rhetoric that we use is part of that tradition. And for me, it was looking at, we have seen the ways in which words and language have been violated and also used to violate others. So how mm -hmm. can this inauguration day be um, a new dawn for the 
written and spoken word and that we're actually reclaiming that tradition as a path of healing. When did you discover poetry? How old were you? And what was your process, your journey like to becoming a poet? I discovered poetry, I want to say, at a really young age, probably like four or five. I didn't really know it was poetry when I first began writing. I was just putting my thoughts on a page. I thought they were honestly songs. And then I realized I could not sing and I was just (laughs) speaking out what I was writing. Um, But yeah, from pretty young age, um, my mom's an English teacher. So that's always been at the forefront of my thinking. Funnily enough, um, she's not the biggest poetry fan. <laughs> I think I think I'm one of the main only by what she reads recently. But yeah, you know, when I was a toddler, um, I stumbled across writing, and I think it was a huge instrument for me because growing up, I had a speech impediment. So it was like, wow, look at this medium in which I can express my thoughts and my ideas. And I remember distinctly being around eight, and I was writing, and it was just this surreal dichotomy because the voice that I heard in my head when I was writing on the page sounded so different from the voice I spoke in. And I think only now as a 22, soon to be 23 year old, am I actually speaking with that voice that I heard so long ago, you know, when I was seven and writing. That's fascinating. Well, you're also a twin. Mm -hmm. And people talk about how twins communicate. Mm. I mean, do you think there was anything about your twinship that moved you toward being a poet? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up. What's so funny about being a twin is you probably hear this all the time. Like, we often have our own languages. That's what I hear. (laughs) I'm not sure that actually helped with the speech impediment because it was like, why do I need to speak English? I have my twin language. She gets me. And my twin often served as, like, my translator. It was like I was a foreign dignitary. (laughs) My twin was like, she wants a sandwich. There's too much peanut butter. (laughs) And my mom was just being like, Okay, (laughs) great. So my poor mother would just like have my sister work as like Google Translate for Amanda Gorman. Um, So it was really funny. Being a twin, I think, made me lean into the idea that who says language isn't this? Who says language isn't that? We still have our own language to this day. And we're kind of bad about it because we use it to talk about other people (laughs) when they're in the room. So we used to do that in high school uh, and just be talking about people in our own language and be like, oh, we're just talking about dinner, you know, doing it. Um, But yeah, so I love my twin and she's always been a a great supporter of my non-English conformity. I love that. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. 
Listen to Woke App Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. 
In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. To, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, when uh, I read about your mom and the fact that she was an English teacher and mm-hmm. she obviously valued, you know, education, I read that when you were a kid, she only let you watch 1940s sitcoms. <laughs> yeah. And one that they mentioned in the article I read was The Honeymooners. Yes. Which, oh, my gosh, I'm dating myself. But, you know, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't watching that on reruns uh, back in the day. And if you wanted to watch so-called modern TV, uh, you had to make a social justice argument to convince uh, her to let you. Tell us what that was about, because clearly it worked. It's a little (laughs) unconventional, but it worked. (laughs) Exactly. Well, um, you know, my mom, she was really hard set on us not necessarily just being consumers of content, but creators of our own content and the stories we wanted to see. So that started with kind of monitoring what we were taking in and how much we were taking in. And so we started just with like one TV show that we were allowed to watch, which was The Honeymooners. I was probably like in late elementary school when I realized television and color was actually a thing. (laughs) Uh, It was so funny. Like I brought my friends over to my house and I like put in the little VCR tape and they were like, why is your screen in black and white? And I was like, is it yours? And um, but it was a really lovely childhood because it meant that we were spending so much time creating plays and songs and writing poetry um, because the television was off, because we Mm -hmm. had to be our own entertainment. And then once we kind of graduated from the honeymooners to things like H.R. Puffin stuff, very complex, um, <laughs> the Munsters and so on, if I wanted to watch something um, that was modern, I had to actually communicate why that was something that should be in my visual repertoire. So I remember wanting to watch Kim Possible and making the argument that she was a strong female character and I should be exposed to her. And that argument worked. But when I wanted to watch... America's Next Top Model. (laughs) It was more some mm, good try. But my mom did turn it on for a few minutes and she was like, okay, let's talk about everything wrong with this. Like, what did you just see and what were those messages? And so it wasn't necessarily sheltering us from everything, but making sure that we were able to articulate those stories, how they were influencing our points of view so that we could then speak back to them. Well, she was ahead of her time because now everybody says, you know, limit screen time for your children. And it's no longer just the TV you're competing with, but obviously everything online. Exactly. It can't help but limit your own creativity because you are absorbing somebody else's messaging. And you've got to almost deliberately move away from that in order to uh, do your own creativity. You know, this year, as you summed up so well, both in in your poem, but also in the interviews that you've done, uh, has been incredibly hard for so many people. Were you able to finish your last year of college before COVID hit? No, I I wasn't. Um, Uh I was in my senior spring and our campus closed down like so many others around the country. um, And I came back home. It wasn't until I think I was a few weeks in to the online schooling process where I realized, I think, how much grief 
I personally was in. I think for so long, we, we didn't have a collective word for what we were going through. It was mm-hmm. almost an unintelligible emotion. And to kind of realize that, oh my gosh, every day I'm waking up grieving. Grieving for everything I've lost and everything I haven't yet. Um, and so that was a really hard period. I'm not being able to have my graduation, which, you know, my family takes education so seriously. I'm a descendant of slaves. The idea that I, as a Black woman, would be walking across the Harvard graduation stage, graduating with honors, was huge to my family. And so just finding ways to move forward and push on, you know, it was difficult, especially because when you're someone that I think people look to for hope, I was writing a lot of poems at the time, and people kept asking me for kind of new commissions, which spoke to the moment. And I was like, I'm right here with you. I am going through this. <laughs> you're in the moment. I'm yeah. in the moment with you. You know, I'm in the fog of war and being expected to have clarity in that. Um, and so that was hard. And I think how I navigated it and continued to cultivate my own creativity and my voice was actually looking a lot to the past and looking Mm. at the truth speakers of our history who lived through times of immense grief and also intense isolation, which we now call quarantining. So I was thinking about, you know, Martin Luther King writing a letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm. I was thinking about Anne Frank writing in her diary while hiding from Nazis. I was even thinking about Shakespeare um, during the plague and when it hit Europe and him having to leave London um, and continue his artistry in kind of rural areas. So there has been a precedent of storytellers continuing to document the best and worst of humanity. And I wanted to be part of that tradition. Not to say I am any one of those icons, but to say that their light in history has served as a beacon for me. Well, but I think that's really important, Amanda, because what we're missing right now is hopeful storytelling. Mm-hmm. We we are missing the individual voices and then the chorus that they can create that can help guide us. Like, I really appreciated your poem during the Super Bowl, lifting up people on the front lines. Thank you. Because it was a way of saying we're all in this together. We're about to watch a football game, but let's not forget the people who have been taking care of us and keeping us going. And right now, in conversations that I'm having with people, you know, everybody is saying, what's America's story? Mm. You know, the story has been somewhat degraded and... Words have been weaponized. Mm -hmm. Your poem helped to kind of pull us forward, but sort of what's next? I mean, if you could have the proverbial, you know, magic wand to wave, how would you help America regain a truthful unity with purpose poem, you know, sense of story about where we go next? Only asking the easy questions today, aren't you, (laughs) Hillary? Yeah, I'm looking for wisdom. I mean, you know, I... I love it. Well, I'm looking for it from you. So, um, but you know, what's really interesting is my mom keeps saying this to me in the aftermath of my um, poem about, you know, the reason that she believes it's touched so many people is she was basically saying, you know, for so long, we've heard so many words and none of them have been kind. Mm. No one, it feels like, has said a kind word in four years. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's it's looking at what is America's story and how do we tell it, you know, which is just as important. It's just as important of the things that we're saying as how we are saying them. Are we saying them with honesty, with 
kindness, with compassion? Are we saying what is necessary? And so I think I'm a small piece of that effort. It was almost like on Inauguration Day, there was this on switch. I was watching the news and the language of coverage was so much different. The language of journalists was so much different. The language um, that I was hearing from fellow poets was so much different. And it wasn't as if we were erasing anything that had happened, but it was so amazing to see hope and kindness re-enter American rhetoric to all of a sudden become the dialects that we speak in once again. And so I think that's the power of voice, of storytelling, of one person. If one poem can reintroduce a country to what it means to hope together yet again, that in itself is a new chapter in the American story. Right. You create the space for people once again uh, to be kind, to be right. hopeful. Mm-hmm. I think we've all been in a kind of collective defensive crouch. Mm. It's almost like what's going to happen next? You know, exactly, what terrible right. thing is going to occur? And of course, you're not only a poet, you're someone who has followed and expressed an interest in politics, including running for president <laughs> in 2036. Yes. When did that first uh, dawn on you that, hey, wait a minute, I want to do this? I mean, probably with you, honestly, <laughs> and I know you're such an inspiration to so many people around the world, including me. I mean, I remember being in elementary school and, you know, your name is always in our household. And, you know, my mom always making sure that I saw the work that you were doing. And then I think, you know, as I entered middle school, which interestingly enough, I think that is typically the phase where girls, their dreams start to change. They might have begun hoping to be a scientist and then, you know, they enter middle school and puberty happens and they're kind of shepherded off to other avenues. That's kind of when I doubled down, if anything, on the dreams I already had and saying, I want to make a difference. I, I want to make a change. And I don't just want to write about it. I want to participate in it in um, other avenues. So I would say probably around sixth or seventh grade. And it was funny because um, I think many people at first thought it was a joke, like, ha ha, little girl <laughs> wants to be president. <laughs> and it is no joke. Um, I, I told my mom, you know, I want to be president in 2036. And she was like, <laughs> OK, so this is what we're going to do. And we sat down and had a great family conversation. The you know main message of which was I would have to be so careful for basically the rest of my young adulthood with what I put out there of myself. So I didn't Mm -hmm. get social media until late high school. Um, And even if I remember so many times being at parties or hanging out with friends and they would be taking selfies and I would just run to the bathroom or slide away or like cover my face. And it was just like the de facto norm in my family and our friendship group. Amanda's going to be president in 25 years. Um, We can't be taking photos of her all the time. So it was just like what happened. And I remember, you know, my sister, my twin being at UCLA and being at um, parties and them taking photos and her being like, I can't be in it. My sister's running for president. (laughs) I don't want to be the thing that comes up 25 years from now. And so my family takes it dead seriously and I love them for it. So, yeah, it's it's been it's been a long goal. We'll be right back.
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. 
So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what's next for you? How do you, you know, envision, you know, the next five years, you know, into your late 20s? Mm, For me... What's next for me is almost kind of like what's now. I think so much is happening and often it feels like you have to say yes to everything at once. Just the wave of attention and requests mm-hmm. that I've been getting and I've been learning that like no is a complete sentence. It is. That's a good lesson. Yes. Exactly. It's a, it's a really good lesson that I've been learning to kind of just take time for myself. So I think, you know, the next few years are going to be really interesting. They're going to be exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be me, I think, continuing on a path of what I hope is leadership and also like a non-traditional fashion. So I think often when we think about leaders or the political sphere, there's a very set agenda of tick marks that you have to hit. And often they're defined by whiteness and masculinity. That's Mm -hmm. how you um, achieve um, a pedestal of leadership. And for me, it's like, how do I gain an imprint in society where I can make change, where I'm actually following a path that is informed by my femininity, informed by my blackness, informed by my poetry. So it doesn't mean stopping writing and then, you know, going to law school. It means actually continuing to write, continuing to speak, and also continuing to learn and be educated in all of the wide spheres that I can be. Mm -hmm. I think you have what is the most important uh, quality for anyone who is uh, seeking leadership in whatever sphere. Mm. You have a voice that is informed by not just your own life experience, but very importantly, you know, the shoulders you stand on going back, you know, generations. You have a voice because of how you've been raised as well as educated. Right. Uh, you have a voice that is poetic, but it comes from a deep place. So it's important to just remain who you are with that voice mm-hmm. uh, and to seek opportunities, you know, to try to, you know, utilize it to bring people together, to, right. you know, maybe set some goals, some projects, some things that you are going to work on. Because at the end of the day, we are in great need for a kind of revitalization of the American experiment. Right. It has, you know, 
I'm not going to say run aground, but it may be out there treading water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of conflict. And so clarity of voice, breaking through that fog, mm. is a necessary part of leadership always, but particularly now, I think. Exactly. A hundred percent. And I think that's something that I'm also learning, which is of the pricelessness of your own voice. I think when you have this electric moment where um, something you say ricochets throughout the entire world, people keep handing you the mic and saying, speak, Mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's learning to kind of take a step back and actually pass the mic on to other people, which is why, um, for example, the Super Bowl poem was so important to me. It wasn't about, here's Amanda Gorman again, applause, applause. It was actually, there's these three amazing people who are doing great work who we should recognize because they yeah. symbolize the best of who we are and so many thousands of other people who are showing up every day for us. So, you know, trying to use my voice to give voice to others. Well, I can't tell you how excited I am for what lies ahead for you. And I really mean it when I say I want to be of whatever help and support because, you know, there's a a change in perspective that inevitably accompanies, you know, post-college mm-hmm, entry mm-hmm. into adulthood, particularly looking for, you know, political footing and Someday when we can travel again post-COVID, maybe you and your mom and I can, you know, sit down and have a meal together. Oh, I'd love that. (laughs) That'd be amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb, will be published in March 2021. Her debut children's book, Change Sings, and her first poetry collection will be out in September. You can pre-order all three now from your favorite independent bookstore. So that's it for this week's episode, but we do have a lot to talk about in this season. We're going to be talking about fighting online disinformation, what to do about these tech companies that are literally taking over our brains and in many ways running our lives. We'll talk about the impact the pandemic has been having on kids. What do we do for kids who have been so dislocated, not being able to go to school, being at home, trying to make, you know, online learning work. And we will also look at the differences between real-life politics and what we see on shows like SNL. We've got a lot of great conversations and, yes, a few surprises headed your way. So please stay tuned. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin, Kathleen Russo, and Lauren Peterson with help from Huma Abedin, Nikki Etour, Oscar Flores, Lindsay Hoffman, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Rob Russo, Opal Vadan, and Lona Valmoro. Our engineer is Zach McNeese, and original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like You and Me Both, please share it with your friends. Let them know they can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't sister. know we were going to go there on this. <laughs> People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.